Okay. Have you ever wondered why Faversham seems to be less important than it really ought to be? I don't know if it's one of these things which keeps you awake at night. Uh, from the looks of most people's faces, which are utterly blank, probably no. But if you think about where we are, and we're just sort of here north of Watling Street, we're in a situation where you've got the main road, you know, one of the major roads of the country in the past, going here, but actually Faversham is slightly off the main road, and so although it was clearly important in Roman times, it was clearly important in early medieval times, it seems to be not quite so important now. It's a bit off the main route. But if you go back to Roman times, if you wanted to get from London to Rome, your route would have been along here down to Dover, because the Romans didn't like water, so they always looked for the shortest crossings when they had to cross water. So you then just hop over from Dover to Calais, and then you've got a nice overland route down to Rome. And it's the same sort of thing if you wanted to go east. You know, London is almost about the furthest west they got. If you wanted to go east down to where what became a couple of two or three centuries later, Constantinople, now called Istanbul. If you wanted to get there from Rome, what you'd do is you'd go down through Rome to the south, somewhere like Brindisi, then you would catch a boat across a narrow bit of the Aegean over to western Greece, and then you would follow a road which goes across, and then across the top of Greece, and then as it's getting towards now what we call Turkey, it'd be not that far from the coast. In the same way as Watling Street, isn't that far from the coast. I don't know if you've ever wondered why does it go there? Why doesn't it go a bit further closer to the coast? But what you need to remember, of course, is in Roman times, the sea came up as far as all. So therefore, the road couldn't have been any further there. It had to be a bit inland because of the tidal creeks. Now, Faversham lost out because it's, if you like, a port and that bit off the road. Philippi, this uh, city in uh, what we'd now call Greece, which Paul was writing the letter to, which we're looking at, as you can see our main title, Joy, the message to the Philippians. Well, it's called that because they lived in Philippi. And this was a city on the road. It wasn't on the coast, it was a little bit inland. And so, and they had become over the years, a Roman colony. It was a Roman colony for two reasons. One is that victorious generals often settled their sort of uh, soldiers in colonies to help protect newly won land and also to reward the soldiers when they got to retirement. And so Philippi had become a Roman colony that way. It had then been expanded with even more Romans who had been sent from Italy there because what had later happened was a Roman general having won and having gone back to Rome wanted to protect his power base and therefore he wanted to settle his soldiers near Rome so he got some ready-laid on supporters if he needed them. But of course the problem was there were people living there 
So those people were given land over in the area around Philippi. So you've got here a Roman colony. You've got people who are extremely proud that they're Roman and they run their uh, city on Roman basis. So it's, this is the place we're looking at. If you want some homework before growth groups this week, have a read of Acts chapter 16. Because that tells you about when Paul first came to Philippi. Paul had not intended to go to Philippi. It wasn't somewhere he chose to go. He had gone off on a missionary journey thinking he would go and revisit churches he had planted in what we would now call Turkey and then follow the logical progression round to more cities in that area. But when he tried to go there, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. And he kept getting nudged further and further up the coast till he came to Troas. And there, at night, he had a dream. And in this dream, he had somebody from Macedonia said to him, come over to Macedonia. And we're told that he took that as a message from God. So he and his companions got on a ship and sailed to uh, a port close to Philippi. Because as I said, it wasn't on the coast. They then travelled inland to Philippi because that was one of the major cities. And when we look at how Paul worked, he often started in the major cities of an area. And having planted a church there, they could then spread the good news into the other areas. So Philippi was the first place in Greece, the first place on the European mainland that Paul preached in and where he had planted a church. We find that being very much a Roman city, there weren't very many Jews living there. Paul being Jewish, the Christian church growing out of the Jewish community, the first place he would normally go in a new city would be to the synagogue and to preach to the people there. But there weren't enough Jews living in Philippi for there to be a synagogue. So we find in Acts chapter 16, he goes down to the riverside. Because apparently, if you haven't got a synagogue, that's where people who wish to worship the one true God went to meet. And there, he meets a lady called Lydia, who we're told is a trader in purple goods. Now, as you probably have noticed over the years, purple is a colour I tend to have uh, an attraction to. Uh, but in those days, purple was extremely expensive. So, you know, you've got to think of her as sort of, uh, I'm not quite sure what the equivalent would be in modern times, but, you know, you're thinking of prestige goods which only the rich people would buy. She hears what Paul preaches, she becomes a follower of Jesus, she gets baptised, she invites Paul to go and stay with her. And he goes and he speaks 
in the town, in the city. And we find that there's a slave girl in this city who has a spirit of divination. And she follows after Paul. And she keeps saying, you know, these people can tell you about the Most High God. You know, so Paul's getting free advertising. But after some days, it doesn't say how many, he gets a bit annoyed with this going on all the time. He obviously has compassion for this slave girl who's got this spirit. So he sets the slave girl free of the spirit. Which we would think, oh, that's good. You know, somebody's been set free from being oppressed by an evil spirit. But of course, her owners didn't think that was good because they made money out of her uh, giving uh, prophecies about people. And of course, there's nobody more annoyed than somebody who's had their life, uh, their nice sort of profit stream taken away from them. And so these owners get the rulers to uh, arrest Paul and his companion Silas. He's beaten, thrown in jail. That night, there's an earthquake. But even before the earthquake, Paul and Silas have been singing songs of praise to God in the jail. So when Paul's talking about joy when we come to this letter, it's something he's put into practice already. Earthquake, doors fall off the jail. Jailer thinks, you have a jail with no doors on, there won't be any prisoners left inside it. If you are a jailer and you lose your prisoners, there's only one consequence in those days. And so jailer decides to cut things short and commit suicide. Probably because it would leave things better for his family if he does it that, rather than waiting for it to happen judicially. But Paul calls out and says, look, don't kill yourself. don't know quite how he knows he's going to do this because it's dark and there's no lights according to what it tells us at that point. But he realises what is happening, calls out, tells the jailer, don't do that, everybody's still here. Jailer comes in, takes Paul out and Silas, listens to the message of salvation, gets saved. Not quite sure what the rulers were thinking about the earthquake, but next morning they send a message to uh, let Paul and Silas out of the jail. They think they've probably done enough to uh, quieten them up. At which point, Paul points out he's a Roman citizen. Now, one of the things which you didn't do was beat Roman citizens without uh, a uh, just cause, and you certainly didn't do it if you wanted to keep your position. There have been various legal cases in the previous 50 to 100 years on this particular issue. So now, the rulers of the city are really worried and they call Paul in uh, they actually go to let Paul out because Paul says I'm not going unless you come and 
They apologise, but they want to get rid of him, so they say, please, can you go? So Paul now uh, spends a day with Lydia and the believers and telling them what he needs to tell them about uh, the church and getting it progressing, and then he moves on to the next city. So that's how the church we're talking about started. Paul goes on other journeys, ends up getting arrested, and ends up in prison. And this letter clearly is written when he's in prison, probably in Rome, and quite possibly this is the last of the letters to the churches he actually writes. There might be a few personal, the personal letters afterwards, but this could be his last one. In some of his earlier letters from prison, he's clearly thinking, like, once I've had my trial, I'll be free, then I can go off and start church planting in Spain and other places he wants to get to. The implication by the time we get to Philippians is he realises that is not going to happen. And therefore, the risk, you know, he sees that the chance of him actually being executed in the near future is becoming more and more likely. So this is the context of which Paul is writing. So from chapter 1 of Philippians and verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and also be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God. There's a story, I'm not sure how true it is, but you can probably imagine it. If you've seen sort of Hornblow or any sort of Napoleonic naval uh, things, you know, where you've got this sort of crusty old admiral examining the uh, sort of uh, uh, midshipman for his uh, sort of promotion kind of thing. And so the crusty old admiral goes on, right, you're at sea, in a storm, and, and a storm uh, blows up, what do you do? So midshipman says, put an out an anchor, sir. So the admiral says, right, you lose that anchor, and another storm blows up, what do you do? Put out another anchor, sir. You lose that anchor. And a third storm blows up, what do you do? Put out another anchor, sir. Where are you getting all these anchors from? 
Same place you're getting your storms from, sir. <laughs> right. The, here, Paul has three anchors which he's holding on to. Why he's in prison, why he, why he is thinking about the Philippian church. It's a church, as we, from the context of what I've already said, it's a church which is dear to his heart. Now, when we read Philippians compared to some of the other letters, it's not one where there's lots of problems in the church. There are a few, but it's not one where there's sort of massive problems he's trying to deal with. So, verses 3 to 6, his first anchor is that he has joy in God because God is faithful. Now, if I just read that bit again from, one, from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He knows that... What God has started in the Philippians, he will bring to completion. And that is dependent on how faithful God is. When we, you know, those of us who've been in the church for any length of time, we will know that we have disappointments. We'll know we've been in situations when people get saved and then seem to fall away. Where things seem to start going well, and then for reasons you maybe can't quite fathom, things seem don't go well. And sometimes things seem to fall apart. But, our faith in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus is secure... Because the God we put our faith in is faithful. So therefore, we can have joy. Even if there are difficulties. We can have joy even if people who are dear to us appear to fall away from the faith. If we think somebody getting saved is dependent on our caring hearts or dependent on our clever arguments if somebody appears to fall away that can then cause us to wonder about ourselves but nobody ever ultimately got saved because of what we've done the most we can do is introduce somebody to Jesus and it's the Holy Spirit working in them who brings them to salvation. And therefore, if the Holy Spirit working in them brings them to salvation, like Paul, we can be sure that it will be brought to completion in that final day. Doesn't mean we're not sad when that sort of thing happens. But it shouldn't rob us of our joy in Jesus. Because that is not dependent on uh, what is happening. 
is dependent on his faithfulness. So we need to be willing to acknowledge that things are not always where we'd like them to be. But we should have joy in the fact that God will bring them to completion. His second anchor in Philippians 1 verses 7 to 8 is the love and compassion of Jesus. In those verses it says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What we want to see is we want to ask the Holy Spirit to give us the love and compassion which Jesus has for us, for others. The word used here is affection in most translations. I think, it's, I think we, again, it's one of these things we have to be careful we get things the right way around, that we're not looking to love people like Jesus loved in the sense that we're not trying to do it in our own strength. Because we can't. But Jesus said when he went back up to heaven that he would send another comforter, the Holy Spirit, to enable us to do what he had been doing. So therefore, we need to be, time and time again, just asking the Holy Spirit to enable us to love people like Jesus did. And Paul here has that love which Jesus had for the Philippians, he also has that love for them. And that gives him joy, because he knows that those people are safe in Jesus' hands. And finally, his third anchor in verses 9 to 11 is a life of fruitfulness through Jesus. Here it says from verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There are some things I repeat endlessly in my sermons, and I'm going to do one of them now, but some things, because they go so much against the culture we live in, we have to keep repeating and reminding ourselves. When we look at the beginning of verse 9, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. We need to remember that love is basically an action of the will and not a warm feeling. Our culture would tell us that love is a warm feeling somebody has for somebody else. And then if that warm feeling isn't there anymore, you say, they say, people will say that their love has gone. But actually, love is far more... I'm not against emotions, as I've pointed out. Uh, you know, one of the... I've already mentioned recently, you know, one of the things the baptism of the Holy Spirit did for me was to enable me to express my emotions more. But, 
ultimately there's an act of the will here. Because otherwise, why else would love be linked with knowledge and discernment? If it's just a feeling, you don't need to know anything about it. But love, which is an act of the will, goes much, much deeper. One of the commentators I read, a chap called Caird, uh, who I, I don't quite know his background, but I think he was the principal of a Methodist college in Oxford University, makes this point on this passage. Moral decisions are only rarely a matter of distinguishing right from wrong. They require knowledge of the character of God and discernment. Which when I thought about it, I found quite helpful. Because often when we're thinking about moral decisions, again, I think it comes partly our culture, partly, if you like, the uh, uh, religious culture we live in, we tend to want to have facts and use facts to reach decisions. But here, Paul is saying we need to love. And the word, though it says knowledge in most translations of verse 9, the actual Greek word has got a prefix on it to make it mean sort of complete knowledge. So we want to have full knowledge of God. We need, want to have full knowledge of the character of God. It's not something you get quickly. You can get a few facts very quickly. But to get a full knowledge of God's character is something which takes time. And the word used here when it says in verse 10, so you may approve of what is excellent, has behind it the idea of learning by experience. You know, you can approve things because you know from experience what has happened in the past. And the word they, which is translated excellent is a word which came from Greek philosophy, which, like most things in everyday use, words meanings twist a little bit. But in the culture of the time, it had come to mean the things that really matter. So we need, in love, to ask the Holy Spirit, again because we can't do it of ourselves, to develop our knowledge of God's character, our discernment of situations. So therefore, we can approve of the things which really matter. We can discern which things really matter and which things don't. And so we can be filled by fruits of righteousness. Again, it's an ongoing process. It's not a... Uh, the tense used in the Greek can either mean something in the past or an ongoing one. And probably the meaning of the context, the ongoing. We continue to get fruits of righteousness, of the righteousness here being the fact that we've been put right with God, not a righteousness of our own doing. But it starts developing in, in our lives. It changes our character. So that we end up with a life of fruitfulness through Jesus. All of the things I've said 
you know, any of these things could have developed further, but my main aim today was to do an introduction. And of course, with Paul, when he introduces things like this in his prayer at the start of his letter, they're themes which get developed as we go through. So these themes will come back and will get developed later. But let us be remember and be like Paul. Even though he was in prison, even though he knew that he was likely to be executed in the near future, he still had joy. He still took joy in the other people around him. The people he knew in the church here in Philippi. So let us continue with joy too.